Good morning, folks. I, um, I'll, I'll work with my uh, microphone here until I get it right. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of my voice when I can hear it uh, like this. So for those of you people who are like me, don't ever watch yourself on TV. It's not a very comfortable uh, thing to do. I'm going to uh, open up with a word of prayer, uh, if you don't mind. And first and foremost, thanks for having me here this morning. I really appreciate that. Uh, do you pass the collection plate at this church? Wow. We've got to learn how to start doing that. And still raking in, right? Uh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. So, well, I guess I can afford to eat a Taco Bell today. I brought cash. So, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly in the name of Jesus. And, uh, Lord, I thank you personally uh, for this opportunity to share with this uh, church. And, Lord, I... I pray that your blessing will be upon your word today. Uh, I ask that your spirit will be among us. And I ask that you guide my heart and my lips in truth. In your holy name we pray. Amen. And um, by the way, how long uh, do we uh, have here to share God's word this morning? That was the one thing that I forgot to ask you. Okay. Good deal. So we'll, I'll break you guys at about 2 o'clock. Maybe we can do Taco Bell together, and then we'll come back, and I'll, I'll wrap up things at around a six, all right? And so I'll just walk through my sermon here. I'll make sure that it doesn't uh, get a little long, and I don't wear out my welcoming mat. So uh, it's really good to be here uh, with everybody. So I love this place, you know? I, I'd be setting up there, too. It's, that's, hey, hey, guys. Yeah, that's great. You guys are extra COVID people, I see, huh? There's... Nothing wrong, with, <laughs> nothing wrong with being a little cautious, right? Uh, this is a very lovely place. This is a lovely community that you're a part of. Uh, as Joel mentioned, I, I met him through some uh, pastors at, at our church, and uh, it's been a really good connection ever since then. Um, I had a, a dream when, when I was growing up as a child that I was going to be a somehow, some way that I'd get into the major leagues of playing baseball. You can see my stature. I'm five foot five. It looks a little bit better from here, <clears throat> I would imagine. And so uh, whenever Joel and I go out and we play catch, he proves to me that it was simply a dream. Um, and, and so he, he's quite the baseball player. He's got the arm. Uh, he's about 100 years younger than I am. And, and so, uh, but we, we have a really good time, a, a really good guy. It's nice to be here amongst your church family and your church people. So thank you so much for having me. Uh, we've got somebody from our choir at Central Baptist. His name is Jake McGill. Jake, say hello to everybody. Uh, uh, Jake lives right here in the community, and, and we do things together here in the community as well. And uh, I house set uh, uh, where our, there's a, a big chocolate lab that I babysit, one of our church members. He's not far from there. He's got a uh, what kind of? It's a who? Okay, yeah, Turner and Hooch, if anybody remember. They slobber a lot right? And, uh, and so we, we hang out quite a bit when I got the opportunity uh, to come down here, and so that's nice. What I wanted to do with you guys this morning is I wanted to share a little bit uh, about myself, where I come from, how I got here, and how um, some aspects of my lifestyle are conducive to helping me to get to know the Midway community and how I've been able to reach out and, and uh, what I've taken from that. And then hopefully leave a word for us uh, uh, today on, on what it means to be 
others, uh, uh, meaning de depending on what side of others uh, uh, that we fall on. We'll get down to the bottom of that. Uh, starting out with myself, uh, I've been down at Central Baptist since 2015, and uh, as a community pastor there, my relationship with Joel Lawrence, who was the head pastor there, started at Bethel Seminary, which is where I went to school and, and, and got a uh, Master's of Theology and Biblical Studies uh, degree. Prior to that, I went to a school in downtown Minneapolis called North Central University. Uh, it's at a place in Elliott Park, kind of right downtown and, and not far from HCMC, uh, where I, I did a, a bachelor's degree in pastoral studies and, and biblical studies. And so I love God's word. I, I love it academically. I love the education that I received and um, what that means for me as a career and as a human being and the things that I get to do with my life. It's blessed. Uh, it, it, was a, it was quite the trip to get there, though, and because I, can, I used to stand up and, and tell people that, uh, you know, I, I, I speak Arabic, uh, um, uh, I read Greek, uh, I've got two degrees, and, and, and I try to build up all these successful things that some people may be impressed with, some may not. Um, but then the transition really fast to a kid who's had syringes in his arm from shooting up cocaine, right? And uh, the reason why I like to do that is because the life I live today is a complete contradiction to the life that I came from. Uh, I came to Minnesota in 1991, I, I believe, and, and when I got to Minnesota, is during the summer, my friend from uh, Indiana, which is originally where I'm from, near Indianapolis, uh, he was living here. He's working for a cable company. I came here to work with him. Um, I, it was in August in 1991, which was great. I start, begin to love the Twin Cities and start to get a, a feel for the Twin Cities. And then Halloween day, it snowed 27, 28 inches, and I was ready to go wherever I came from. Uh, I remember wanting to get out of here. It was my first winter here. And I had moved here from Los Angeles, uh, uh, and uh, that's, that was quite a drastic change. Uh, at any rate, <clears throat> town in, in Indiana called Kokomo, Indiana is where I was born. Um, I, I had a, a family that was broken up. I've got four brothers and sisters uh, who are not my full brothers and sisters. We all have different fathers. I was the youngest one of four, and my mom's relationship and my father's relationship ended when my mother shot my father, all right? Um, it's an uh, it's a, it's, it's a opening act to the beginning of some of the challenges uh, that we face together as a family, and, and myself, uh, particularly in how I come to know Christ. Uh, usually when you shoot a family member in your household, they don't stick around, okay? And uh, my father didn't die, uh, and um, it, was, it was a bad situation. My mother did go to jail, and there were some people who petitioned for her to be able to get out. It was the beginning of a rocky road. Um, in Indiana is an industrial state, meaning that uh, we have factory towns there. Uh, Chrysler, General Motors, Delco, uh, the ventilator machines that got made in a hurry that was a crash course were made at Chrysler in Kokomo, Indiana. That's my hometown. And... Um, and so my mother had a job with General Motors Delco all of her life and, and with four children, and, and um, uh, she stretched it out and she made things work, but we were still uh, kind of under the line and more than likely because of how 
my mother managed her, her money. And so one of the things that was hard to come by in my household was food, uh, believe it or not. Uh, we uh, didn't always have food. And um, to this day, if I find anybody who's got government cheese in a cardboard box, I would come over and, and we'll do grilled cheese uh, sandwiches together. I, I loved it. Um, and that's just the way things were. I would say probably when I was um, somewhere around 14 years old, I'm riding my bike and back to school, and there's some gentlemen there. They're a very diverse community in Indian Heights, Kokomo, Indiana. There were whites, there were blacks, uh, there were people who were uh, under the middle class line, and there were people who lived in poverty. Uh, my friends were a diverse range of, of folks, and I was blessed uh, uh, because of that. It wasn't an all-black neighborhood. It wasn't an all-white neighborhood. It had just about everything that you can possibly imagine. And, and, and then there's, you know, you can be on one side of Kokomo in the south, and then you can go to the north, and it's like being in two different states. Uh, a, a lot of my friends at the time wanted to grow up and be breakdancers or rappers in the 80s. Uh, I had another large portion of my friends who wore shirts every day that said Slayer, ACDC, or Iron Maiden on them. And, 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 and you know, you could tell by their hairdo uh, uh, who they were. And there was not much discriminating. I just kind of got along with everybody. My nickname was Hooper. The unfortunate thing is uh, in Kokomo, Indiana, I come from a family, a Wilson family, who we had like a godfather in our family. His name is Preacher Wilson. His real name is Larry, and his nickname was Preacher Wilson. And um, in, in all the black communities that you can find in Kokomo, Indiana, my uncle was like a godfather. And uh, he was a godfather uh, primarily because of the business of drugs. Uh, sold drugs for a living. And uh, that's what he did, and everybody knew it. And so I was around and exposed to a lot of drugs at a very, very young age. And, and it was just the way things were, and, and uh, we didn't ask questions. It was, just, it was just life. It was just life as we knew it. Uh, eventually, you become a certain age, though, where you are also either going to make that leap into uh, getting done with school, going to college, and, and starting a career and having some direction in your life are falling by the wayside and being content with the things that you have, and let's see what we've got. Uh, preacher took me under his arm as, a, as his nephew uh, to, to help me see some of the things that he was doing in life, how he operated, who he operated with, and how to move drugs. Uh, sounds strange, uh, but it's true. Um, he didn't set out and say, I'm doing it for this reason. I, I, I am going to mentor young Troy on how to grow up and be a drug dealer. It just was what it was. Uh, around about, um, so I started uh, a, a moving drugs career when I was 14. Somewhere around 1987, an epidemic hit the black community, and I was a part of that epidemic that hit the black community. It's called crack cocaine, all right? And um, I had friends who were from New York. I, I had friends who were from other places who came to Kokomo, Indiana. And when we came to Kokomo, Indiana, we wanted to get in on the action of, of what it was like to cook up drugs uh, and, and go um, into the communities and distribute those drugs. 
very unfortunate situation. I want to give you a little history lesson here, and, and there's going to be a few things I share with you that might be an inside scoop on history, and, and so that might be a blessing uh, if you're able to receive that. Um, but there have been two, two items that, that set back the African community really bad in most of the United States. Uh, one was heroin, uh, and, and heroin came in in the early 60s when black folks became progressive, uh, there, there are stories uh, uh, where uh, J. Edgar Hoover is recorded to have said uh, that um, because they're demanding their rights, the way that they're demanding their rights, somebody has come and infiltrated our system, and we believe that it's the Russians, right? And so why did, why did J. Edgar Hoover, who's head of the FBI at that time, believe that it was Russians who had come in and influenced African Americans? Is because African Americans said that we have rights as well, right? And so in Oakland, California, uh, Huey Newton, Stokely Carmichael, uh, and, and uh, a few other people who organized what's called the Black Panther Party uh, started doing things that were um, pretty uh, uh, audacious to do if you were an African-American living in the early 60s. Uh, basically living without fear, saying that we have rights as well, and, and, and being able to demonstrate that I have those rights and I'm not afraid. And so when, when somebody looks up and says, ah, there's no way they could have figured this out by themselves, right? It says a lot about the, the, uh, the way that people and the government viewed African Americans at that time, right? Even if it doesn't speak to how everybody did, it certainly speaks to J. Edgar Hoover, who had a lot of power as an FBI man. And so those communities were plagued uh, uh, with heroin and guns, right? And when the heroin and the guns came in, uh, things got really bad, and it spread like, it spread like COVID. It, it really did in the inner cities. Um, and we're looking at probably really, really early, uh, um, right after... King's speech on, on uh, Washington, which would have been 63, I think, 64, 65, Oakland, California, Los Angeles, California, Chicago, New York City, Miami, uh, a lot of these places just found themselves buried in heroin, a lot of guns, and things took off from there. Um, after that, the Vietnam War came and things evolved and people got more involved in, with things. And so it was a serious epidemic, right? And, and, and interestingly, just as the African-American communities of the United States was just beginning to recover from heroin addiction and gun violence and, and, and all those things that were, were quite oppressive and, and, and voluntarily, uh, nobody put a gun to anyone's head and said that you guys need to do these drugs and distribute them among your own people now. It was money was involved. And, and and money was needed. Doesn't justify it, but it's, it was a good conducive fit. Just when that recovery started to take place and it looked like the African-American community was going to come and rise out of that, freebase. And then crack cocaine comes. And crack cocaine was a, a way to devise a plan of, of giving your, some, your body something that would make you addicted from the very first hit. And um, as I said, I, I had friends who were involved with that, and uh, we got involved with it. And, uh, you know, the godfather of Studebaker Park, who is my uncle preacher uh, to this day, uh, it hurts my feelings. 
to see him participating on my behalf, right? Uh, here was your youngest, your young nephew who loves you and, 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 and would have done anything for you, and now we're into the hustle game. We're in the hustle game. I'm actually going to give you something that is stronger than you. It's stronger than us. And um, because of that, things change, and they change really fast. And so the man that my uncle preacher was, and his stature-wise uh, of truly being like a godfather, went from being uh, like a godfather to almost homeless, right? And not only did I play a part in his demise, uh, but I played a part, a uh, very big part, in the entire African community of Kokomo, Indiana, some parts of Indianapolis as well, of uh, bringing the community down. And um, before that, uh, the African-American community was just like any community, and, and it wasn't a community that you were to be afraid of. Uh, we had dance parties. We had a good time. Our parks at Studebaker were full all the time, whether it was playing basketball, barbecuing, family members and doing their things. Uh, after the crack cocaine era came, you got into the middle of it, things changed. Uh, fathers were gone. Uh, uh, young people were getting locked up, and people were still making children. Uh, lawns not being mowed. Uh, you know, very simple things that I could point out that are the everyday ebb and flow of communities. It's just not happening anymore. Tall grass, no electricity, and this house looks like it's unkept. The community begins to look like it's unkept. Not everybody in the community participated in, in, in things like that, but a large portion did. Uh, one of the things that, uh, and, and we realized really soon that, you know, I had to get out of there if I was not going to commit myself to a life of prison. Two people that uh, my uncle took under his wing was Troy Wilson, myself, and then my young cousin, Andre Wilson, who's probably about three years younger than I am. <clears throat> And so we did those things uh, in our community, and, and my family decided we've got to get Troy out of here, right? And, and so my mom is the oldest of nine brothers and sisters. Uh, one half lives in Indiana where we participated in things like crime. The other half just so happened to migrate to the West Coast, Los Angeles, Southern California. And guess what? They're all involved with the law, right? Uh, and so Indianapolis relatives would have been their clients, okay? Uh, and, and interestingly, uh, my sister was a parole officer for San Quentin and, and a place called California Youth Authority. Uh, my uncle Ron Wilson was LAPD. Um, and I had an aunt who is a uh, public, she started out as a public defender in a place called Compton. Um, which is a, a part of South Central Los Angeles. When my mom decided it was time for me to abscond, I go out to uh, Los Angeles, and guess where I end up? I end up in a place called Compton at my aunt's house. Now, newsflash, if there's ever an opportunity that you're trying to get your kids better and you don't want them around crime, Compton's probably not the place that you want to send. I'm not sure how many of you have ever heard of the place. It's doing a lot better today than what it used to, but that's not the place uh, to go to, to whatever, all right? 
Um, I went there and I loved it. Uh, I, I thought it was great, but it was crazy. It was a new experience for me. I truly did come from Indiana. I wasn't used to what I got involved with. During the 80s, by the time I got there, the Crip and Blood era had rose uh, to the level of, of extreme violence, consistent everyday violence. Uh, we had every other night, there was a helicopter that was flying over our house, like a war zone, you know? It, it was kind of like being, if you watch a Vietnam movie and in the background in the Vietnam movie, you can always hear a helicopter. In the 80s in South Central Los Angeles, it was the exact same thing, no different. Uh, they flew very low, they put their spotlights down on you right there in your yard and they were usually looking for someone who had committed a murder or a crime or, or a 211, a strong arm robbery with a, a, a weapon. And so uh, living out there, things got faster. Uh, I got back into my old career, which was selling drugs. And it was, uh, I had easy access to do that uh, with people uh, who had just easy access uh, to things as that. Uh, the bulk of my friends came from what would have been called Roland 60s Crip, Compton Crip, Kelly Park Crip. Um, and, 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 and during the Crip and Blood era, if you were living in any portion of South Central uh, Los Angeles, you wanted to make sure that you didn't look like this guy in the third row back unless you meant to wear blue or unless you meant to wear blue. Uh, just happening to leave your house in South Central Los Angeles to wear blue on a Sunday morning for church could more than likely get you killed if you drove down the wrong street. Uh, it was crazy like that. And then the bloods were, were red. They're still around today. Uh, it was out of my league, but I made new connections. Eventually, uh, uh, my, my sister and I remember the first time that I had been out there was 1984 when my sister first moved there to go to UCLA, and um, uh, it was great. She lived in Pasadena. I stayed with her for the whole summer, and at that time in, in 1984, my favorite basketball coach was coaching my favorite player, uh, a college player in the Olympics, right? Uh, and a lot of you may not know this, but the Olympics were in Los Angeles. Uh, in 1984, and so that meant that I went down there and I watched Bobby Knight. Uh, a lot of you guys may have heard of him. If not, I can always throw a chair across the room and, and give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Indiana Hoosiers, right? Uh, Big Ten coach. And so he, this was one of the second to the last teams that was there at the Olympics who were college players, and the college player who was a star stud player obviously was none other than Michael Jordan, right? Uh, at that time in my life, uh, uh, there was a few things that kept me off the streets and kept me kind of level-headed and kind of focused. Um, I was a boxer, uh, and, and so being there during the Olympics, you, I think that we may have had guys like Evander Holyfield, Pernell Whitaker, Mark Breland. It was great. It was a good time. I was really young. What more could you ask for? But when I came back and lived there, I was a little bit older, and my nose knew how to find things out. And, and, you know, if you haven't corrected some of your patterns and you think that a new place is going to give you a new opportunity, it's true. A new place does, get, in fact, give you a new opportunity. But if you haven't made those paramount changes in your life, you simply brought yourself to a different place, right? And I knew that. I knew the family that I was with who were involved with the law. I wasn't interested in their type of lifestyle. I was interested in what I knew 
and what I had come from. Getting back uh, to how things wrap up in Los Angeles, I think that it's going to be a great idea now to start moving drugs from L.A. with the connections that I made to Kokomo, Indiana. We did it. It was successful. Things got crazy. I got hooked on cocaine. Uh, even though we were selling things that people smoked, uh, I got hooked on a powder uh, substance of cocaine. And um, I, was, I was sharing with you that I was a teenage boxer, had went to the Golden Gloves, uh, been to the Nationals twice and, and done things, but it didn't stop me uh, from using drugs. It didn't stop me from smoking marijuana, drinking a little bit of alcohol, uh, but then when the cocaine came in, everything stopped. And, um, and, and so at that point, um, I realized that it, it perhaps was a time to make a move in life. Well, why? Well, because you do things with bad monies when you're doing drugs that you're supposed to be selling. Uh, when you do those things, uh, you forget that you actually have business partners, right? Uh, and when you have business partners uh, in that type of business, people die and they're shot every single day. Uh, when somebody that I knew from New York uh, from Brooklyn, came over with a friend of mine named Dominique and put a gun to my uh, throat uh, and told me it was time to go, it was time to go, right? And so um, I was uh, able to get out of there and thought that there was going to be one more opportunity left that I would have in Southern California, right? Um, Andre, my cousin, he kept the family business going until 1996 when he shot and murdered someone. And he has, he shot and murdered someone in 1995. He was incarcerated in 1996. And uh, he is still sitting in Plainfield, Indiana in, in a prison there. And um, uncertain, to, hoping that he gets out every day, but that's the life, right? And, and that is the life that we are part of. When I decided to make a move from Southern California to uh, Minneapolis Twin Cities, I had a friend who was living here from Indiana. Uh, I thought that it would be a great idea to come and check it out. It was. I started working cable. But eventually, guess what I did? You named it, got right back into the business, right? And it was quite uh, different here getting into the business. Jeremy and his brother, my best friend Jeremy, left when they experienced the snow. And they said, I think enough is enough, even though they've been here for three years. I stay, and, and when I stay, one of the things I was into is I was always into physical fitness and, and the lifestyle of physical fitness and working out and things like that. And there came a time in my young life when I lifted weights and looked in the mirror. I said, you know, I think your body is wired uh, to do good things when, if you get buff. And so I became a competitive bodybuilder, uh, believe it or not. And um, it, it's, it's tough telling that story sometimes. I know it doesn't show. You'll just have to take my word for it. Um, the more out of shape I get, the more I go, you know, I think I'm not going to share that part. <laughs> you can see what happens when you lay it down. At, um, at any rate, uh, a very successful bodybuilder. I, I, I think one of the first jobs I landed here outside of the cable business was like Valley's US Fitness. It's in Fridley. <clears throat> and, and then um, from there, other gym businesses. Uh, in 1993, I, I competed in Mr. Minnesota. Uh, for uh, 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 to win a, a title as what you call lightweight or bantamweight, skin and bones, and maybe two or three muscles, okay? Uh, but then I knew what I needed to do, improve, and to get better, and to get bigger and stronger and faster. And so I moved to Indianapolis, not moved to Indianapolis, 
I flew to Indianapolis to compete for Mr. Indianapolis, which I won, and I became Mr. Indianapolis in 1994, which qualified me for what's called the Nationals. Well, I qualified for the Nationals. Guess what, folks? It's time to take it to the next level. Steroids, all right? And so uh, you're not going to hear many people confess that they fell in love with syringes, all right? Uh, at that time, I did. I, 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 I had a habit that went into my vein. I had one that went in my shoulder and in other parts of my body where you put things into your body to enhance your athletic ability. And, and I competed in sanctions that were non-tested competitions, so I wasn't cheating. Uh, I was cheating if I were to stand next to the, to the average man, and you go, wow, that guy looks great. What's wrong with that guy? Well, the guy who's actually got something wrong with him is the guy who's trying to cover his shame by using steroids, right? Uh, that's what I did. My career got successful. I, uh, they've got, I won Mr. North Star, which is a Minnesota competition. I won, uh, in 98, I won Mr. Gopher State, which is another Minnesota competition in 1996. Uh, things were going really good. I was looking really great. I was feeling really, really good with one exception is you would have saw me and seen my physique and how well kept up I was. You never would have known that I was a junkie. And that is the truth of the matter. What I looked like on the outside had nothing to do with what was going on on the inside. As a matter of fact, there had been some bad weekends where I had marks from uh, the wrist of, of my, my right wrist, all the way up to my shoulder, uh, 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 trying to abuse things that you can inject your body with. If um, the average amount of morphine or, or oxycodone that I had to shoot up every day just to be normal, if, if I were to inject Jake with just a half of that uh, uh, right now, he would certainly overdose, and it wouldn't take long, and, and that's that. For myself, that was just enough to make me feel normal, right? And, and that's how bad the deprivation can get when you're dealing with narcotics and when you're dealing with addiction. It was bad. It was abusive. And I was really dying uh, on the inside. I needed quite a bit just to help me to get up and start my day and not really feel high at all, even though the, obviously you are, but you're just catching yourself up. Now, most people are aware that if you come off of something like that, it's a good thing to come off in the, in the care of space where there are other people so that you are safe and that you're protected. Uh, I had no idea, right? I, I, um, I remember I, I was training people at the time. It was around about 1997-ish and 1997, 1998. And as I was training people, one day I'd, I just ran out and it was no big deal. One day had went by. Next day come, I'm at the gym trying to train someone. Didn't know what was happening to me, and it, it was crucial. It was, I, I just can't, I, I, there's no way I'll be able to describe with you what those withdrawals feel like, okay? Um, I go home, can't finish out my work day, not knowing that I'm not going to be able to leave my house for the next 24 hours because you don't know what opioid withdrawals are all about. Uh, the heroin addict who is sick, 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 and, and they need their fix in order to get up and going on their feet. I know what that's like, even though I didn't do heroin. There's smaller forms of heroin and morphine and oxycodone, but not actual heroin. But it was the same thing. And I was unprepared. I was unclear what that meant. And sure enough, eventually I had to take a trip to the hospital. 
And when I took a trip to the hospital, they had to take care of me, and, and that was that. I come home, do you think things change? Things don't change. I, I, at that time in my life without God, I, um, <clears throat> I went home. I, I moved to a place in New Brighton, not far from where I live right now, and had some cocaine weekend experiences where um, the paddy wagon had to come and get me and take me right down here to... Um, What's the name of that hospital, Jake, uh, on the east side? Regions. Yep, yep. Four floor Regions psych ward. Uh, uh, two times, right? And finally the doctor said, hey, uh, this is the second time you've been here for coming in for cocaine. This time we, they picked you up. You're on cocaine, and guess what? You're shooting your 9 millimeter in your apartment. That's great, all right? Uh, if you ever come back, you see those people who are sitting over there, and, and, it, and it was just a people of a picture who were sitting over there of people who needed to be there, right? It was, it was a mental health ward. She said, you'll be hanging with them because I'm going to keep you, right? If you think what's going on is so cute, imagine the rest of your life being here. It could happen. I have the pen. This is the paper, right? You might want to get things cleaned up. And so at that point in time in my life, I realized, you know, uh, I need to get cleaned up. I can go on for another 50, 60 minutes on how bad addiction was and the toll that it took on my life and the dilemmas of back and forth and up and down. But you guys get the picture, right? We don't need to labor too long on that. It was bad. Uh, it was bad, and, and I'm fortunate. Uh, a lot of people don't have the opportunity or get the opportunity to live through what a lot of others live through. Uh, uh, some people don't make it because of less. And so with that being said, I'm very fortunate today that I'm in Christ, and I'm very fortunate today uh, that I'm still here and uh, that I'm still alive. <clears throat> I ended up in Minnesota Teen Challenge in 2001, and I end up there on, well, it's an easy date to, to remember where I ended up and, and, and how I got there because the very next day, uh, the Twin Towers come down, right? And so it's a day that you're not ever going to forget. September 10th, 2001, I end up on this journey, this life-changing journey uh, with Christ and things like that. Now, before uh, I move on, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about Christ. Isn't that great? A sermon? And I say, hey, you know what? It would be a good thing if I talk about Christ. A little bit, you know. We won't labor too long. No, actually, uh, my first experience with Christ is, is glory be to God, in spite of the struggles that I had when I was a really, really young person, my sixth grade teacher would start her class by opening up the Bible and reading a word from the Bible. And whatever that word was that she read from that Bible, we would have to get the story. And when we got the story, she would be picking up there from the next day. And that's the way that we started our class uh, in Indian Heights, Kokomo, Indiana. Mrs. Edmonds, most people can't stand her, but I love her, right? Uh, and thank you for bringing that up. This was a public school, folks. Uh, and, 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 you know, we all know where we're at today. There's no chance uh, of that being able to happen uh, in public schools today. I'm blessed by the fact that it was. Uh, Mrs. Edmonds cared for me. She, she taught me the Jesus. She taught me the gospel. Some people have folktales, uh, and, and she had this rear, really weird folktale that uh, Jesus, uh, uh, <laughs> you ready? Okay, it's Mrs. Edmonds, you guys, be, be nice, okay? 
but Mrs. Edmonds taught that, you know, if you had long arms, that that meant that you were going to die early, right? And so I thought, hmm, you know. And, and, and well, I was a 12-year-old, sixth grader. I'm fascinated. And I go, really? You know, and, and so I began to wonder, right? But then she shared with us the reason why she shared that is because Jesus had long arms. And, and Jesus' arms, the unique thing about Jesus is that his arms were almost down to his knees, right? And because his arms were down to his knees, that was a clear sign that he wasn't going to live that long of a life. And I thought, boy, you know, and she had me hook, line, and sinker, right? <clears throat> and, and interestingly, I went home from then on and measured myself uh, every day. You know, on the, on the one hand, it's preposterous, uh, the, such a story. On the other hand, it tells you a little bit about the desire that I had at such an early age to say, I desire to be like Jesus, right? Even if it meant living a short life, which meant somebody should probably have taught him to me at the time. But I really did want to be like him, and I, and I thought that would be one sure sign is if my arms were going every day, and, and I probably didn't get that far, you know. Uh, but, but that was my first introduction to Jesus. I was blessed because of that. The seed was sown. I didn't become a believer. The problem is with my life, folks, is, is coming from a household with mom who had problems, uh, with brothers and sisters who had problems, uh, and, and how scattered things were. There was nothing to reinforce that message when I went home, right? And so I got the message. I got goodness. I've got care. I got people who are, who are witnessing the gospel to me. Uh, but then when I go home, there's none of that, right? And then when I leave the sixth grade, there's not much more of it anywhere as well. And I went to a church in Kokomo, Indiana, Pastor Paul Enix and things like that. It begin to, the seeds begin to get in there. They may have lacked being cultivated, right? When I was struggling uh, with syringes in my arms around about 1997, a, a retired bodybuilder friend of mine named Mike Marrier, him and his wife, Julie, they were taking care of me, and they were being good Christian folk because they loved me. And uh, they lived over here in White Bear Lake at the time, and uh, I was really struggling. Mike wanted to talk to me on the phone. He wanted to see if I was slurring my words. He wanted to see if I was being honest with him. And, and you know, there had been times he'd take me downtown Minneapolis and say, come on, let's fill this paperwork out and get this stuff straight. The only problem is when he come pick me up, I was on one of my favorite cocktails, which would be like an Isopam volume uh, pain pill mix, uh, which means I was out, you know. Uh, and, and one time he took me down to the county building, and, and he wanted to get things worked out, and I wrote it down, and I pass out, right? What does Mike do? Mike calls the ambulance and says, I'm leaving him. Uh, you know, it's, it's time that he, he gets this type of wonderful exposure. They take me to HCMC. I'm at HCMC because I'm mad, I'm furious, I'm frustrated. What nerve, what right have you people locking me up in this place as a citizen who was, who was doing just fine out there? This is, a place where, this is a place where those people, and I'm going to start using that word, those people, today, folks. Don't be taken back part. It's going to be a part of our, our lesson uh, today. But how dare you take me where those people go, and I don't belong there, right? And uh, you can be out of your mind uh, with denial. And to be frank with you, I was utterly out of my mind with denial. And the tough thing about denial sometimes, folks, is we don't know that denial is denial all the time. Uh, there are a lot of times that we are bathing in, in the sea of denial, but we are actually convinced in spite of truth being in front of our eyes, right? 
And so I go to HCMC, and, and that's that. Mike Marrier, after I got out of there, he got back with me. He became a, a, a caretaker for somebody who's on drugs. He helped me get to Teen Challenge, and when he helped me get to Teen Challenge, uh, uh, right before that, I was going to speak the Word Church International, which was my home church, Randy Morrison. Uh, did some time at Living, uh, Living Word Church until I figured out what Prosperity Gospel was. Um, and then I wasn't there anymore. And, and then um, at Teen Challenge, I was broken away from something that I needed to be broken away from for a long time. It was what I knew. The things that I was familiar with, the things that I knew, the things that I operated and functioned and, and moved around in so easily, it was, it was taken from me. Uh, and at the time, Teen Challenge was a one-year program. I, I'm not sure if it is today. Uh, and as a part of that one-year program, to not be in my... And, you know, I had, I had very emotional withdrawals. Uh, like, I, I missed... I can remember missing the intimacy between me and cocaine. Sounds sound strange? Talk some cocaine addicts. It, it, it truly is strange. Uh, it, it's called a vice hold. Something has a hold on you, and you are in bondage. Uh, to something, and there was this relationship with me, and I missed it. I wanted out, wanted to get out of there. Time changed, time changed. We went to go visit a school once to see a play called North Central University. They did a Shakespeare play. I liked the place, and as I began to walk more and more in Christ, I decided that I wanted a, a, uh, 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 an academic uh, uh, education. Um, I end up getting put out of there. There's, a, there's some type of probation restriction on me, and um, uh, I'm with Mike at the time in his house in White Bear Lake. And he says, you know, your, your probation officer called today, Troy, there's a warrant for your arrest. And I said, just take me. You know, I, I, I've had it, right? And this truly transpired in my life. Something happened. It was like on, 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 and it was like New Year's Eve, you know, where I said, I can't. I can't go anymore. I can't do this. It's done. It's over. And I want out, and I mean it. My time at uh, Minnesota Teen Challenge was cut short. I had gotten kicked out after six months. Um, and so, come, drop me off. At the time, there was a place in downtown St. Paul called the Annex Building. Uh, not a, 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 it's a, a, one of those old school jails with the tin cans and, you, and the bars. And you can rub the bars up against the, the, the can up against the bar. Nobody knows the trouble I've been. And being in there, but when I first went, the, the police who were there said, great, we've got somebody with a warrant who wants to turn themselves in, and rarely do we ever get that, right? The problem is, we're not going to say nothing if you turn around and walk away, right? And I'm going to turn around and walk away. My word, I've never heard of such a thing. Did you hear me? I have a warrant for my arrest, you know? And they go, we know. Uh, the, the only problem is, is being that you're willing to do that and, and it doesn't look like you're afraid of the law and you want to get your situation on the ground moving. He said, right, we're, we're, we're not supposed to do this, but sir, this is the annex building, jail cells, two bedrooms. He said, it's New Year's Eve. We're going to fill those rooms up, okay? Uh, we're going we're to squeeze 20, 25 people in those little rooms in each cell block. This is New Year's Eve. You don't want to come. We're giving you a break. Take it. And at the time, uh, the reason why I didn't take it, I was just fed up with life. Didn't want to take it. Get me out of here. Beam me up, Scotty. They took me in, and it was true to his word. It was, it, was, it was horrible to wake up and find, you know, 15, 20 men standing 
over you who are all sober and who've been unjustly locked up, even though you can hear that they're clearly intoxicated, all right? And, and so uh, I, I get done with that. Uh, I go complete my time at a drug rehab. When I get out of rehab, I hook up with my counselor from Minnesota Teen Challenge, who's been what I call my shame doctor, Tom Hilton, chemical descent, uh, dependency counselor. Let's go take your SAT test. Let's go see if you can qualify to get into college. I qualify to get in college. The rest is history, right? And uh, uh, once I got into North Central University, I started experiencing new things in my life walking with God that I wasn't expected to experience. I, I fell in love with reading. I became a, a hermit. I, I, I loved books, devoured books. That's one of the reasons, if there was any good reason to be locked up in Howard County, uh, uh, Howard County, it's Indiana, uh, uh, Ramsey County Jail, is I would always say, they got a great library here, right? And people say, great. Uh, why don't we get you out of here and you go to a real library? Uh, you don't have to commit a crime. Uh, uh, but it was true. I would go there and I would devour books and books. I was finding this side about me that I didn't know as a person in Christ. I was finding this person uh, uh, that was inside of me that actually really did love person. It was like somebody being revealed and uncovered that was always down there. To make a long story short, I go and I get my education and I do things. I travel the world. I, I learn to speak Arabic. I go and hang out in the Middle East in, in, in Beirut. Uh, uh, for a month, I, I fly out of Beirut to Amsterdam, and as we got to Amsterdam, we learned that the airport had been bombed uh, in Beirut, and that was the year 2006 where Israel and Hezbollah had a war uh, uh, with each other, and I, I had just barely missed that, right? Um, I, I ended up getting a, a job as a community pastor, but before that, in 2003, I'd start doing jail ministry, and I taught from 2003 to, whew, 2000, I think it was 2017 is when I finally stopped uh, teaching at Hennepin County Workhouse. Uh, I taught at the uh, Ramsey County Workhouse, and I taught at the Anoka County Workhouse, all places that I had been locked up, right? Uh, the only, with the exception of Wright County. Wright County, uh, there's a town out there called Buffalo. I was in a relationship out there for a while, and I had gotten into some trouble there, too. And their jail was really nice. It gave you a room right on the lake, right? And, <clears throat> and so uh, with, with those things being said, I, I, I had experienced all of that only to come and change a, my life. And, and, and when I changed my life through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, now you're going on tour all these places that used to be locked up as a new man. It, it's it's quite, quite amazing. As a matter of fact, I'll share this side note with you. Uh, I, I, um, when, I, I worked at the downtown Minneapolis YMCA from uh, like 2003 uh, to 2018-ish, something like that. It was about 14 and a half years total, uh, right? <clears throat> and, and, and working down there was quite the story. Um, um, it, it taught me a lot. Uh, I had always been a part of health clubs in my lifetime. Working at the YMCA was a and outreach, and, and in that outreach, we worked with a lot of situations that was really hard, difficult people to work with. Why? Because we had special memberships, meaning that there is a bracket of how much money that you can make, and if you don't fit in that bracket, you got back then what we called scholarship memberships. But we also had memberships that were called MHP, uh, Metropolitan Health Plan, right? That's a new name. It was really called MHP, 
mental health plan membership. They just changed the name. And so that means that we had special memberships for people with mental health issues, right? And so I got a job there. Eventually, I became a manager there somewhere around 2004, and I managed that place. And, and, and so the YMCA is going to be a part of our story today, among other things. And, and now, uh, what I'd like to transition into, thank you for that, that crash course on, on my testimony. I, I appreciate you all listening. Um, uh, coming to Bethel Seminary, graduating, and then getting to uh, do business with uh, Joe Lawrence was quite the deal. I was a huge fan of his as a theology teacher. He's, a, he's a, a, an amazing theologian, and that's what I came to that church for. I eventually got a job and started learning how to work with the community. The transition I'm going to make is, how do you work in the community? What do you expect? What type of people do you engage, right? And right before I, I jump into that, well, first and foremost, I, I'm going to tell you that this is a warm community, and um, the experience that, that I had in my lifetime that I just shared with you guys, if I say, hey, that qualified me uh, to go out there and to be a part of the community and take it by the horns, well, I don't want you to be in, under the impression that that's the type of testimony that you have in order to do that. That's not so, right? Uh, but it helped me because it made me unafraid to go places, right? And so I, you're going to hear me some things, uh, say some things today like dope sales or where people are gathered, drug sales and things like that. When I see, and if I'm out in the community and I'm on foot and I know that this is an area or a block or something like that where these things go on, I walk right into them, right? Uh, and, and, and one thing I can assure you is I felt like, yep, I Obviously, we wrote the book on that, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, in Kokomo, Indiana, right now, Britton and Brandon Wilson, uh, twins, uh, who are cousins of mine, they are, have taken over the family business in Kokomo, Indiana. So we have a lifelong business with that. Being able to come and, and, and use whatever experience that I had to engage people of the midway has been a blessing. It's a blessing when sometimes you're around people and you speak the language, right? Uh, and that's not the only language that is spoken in the Midway, but, but it helped. Uh, it also helped through a, a lot of the things that I had done in my life that gave you personality, it gave you diversity, and because you've been involved with diversity, you embrace diversity, and the, the ebb and flow of it is just human. Uh, it's just, it doesn't matter. Social stratification, race, ethnicity, none of those things matter. It's just simply community. And so... Keeping, keeping our, our mind on, on, I want to transition into part where I believe this word is paramount today, and that word is others, right? And what better place to start out uh, when we're thinking of that word, others? I, I think others is actually the name of a Nicole Kidman film, that I, horror film that was, I was proud of. All right, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to transition over into John 4. And in John 4, uh, th there's this passage here that we're dealing with called uh, uh, The Woman of Samara. And chapter 4, verse 7, it reads, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus says to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, Ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman. 
parentheses we have, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Then you get to verse 10, and it says, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water to drink. All right? And so we read through this passage, and when we read through this passage, some of us uh, are familiar with the passage. Some of us may have heard it for the first time today. Um, but it's not the first time in Scripture, particularly in the Gospel, that we hear about the Samaritans, right? Every time that we hear about the Samaritans, what do we learn? We, heard, we, we, we learn that we are talking about, discussing, reading about a people who are disliked for being others, all right? And, and I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with how the Samaritans people in the land of Palestine got to be deemed, called, coined as the others. During the days of Solomon, Palestine was one place, one state, one nation. Solomon's son comes in and he says, I'm going to do things my father's way. And then uh, 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 Jeroboam says, no, we're not. Uh, we're going to do them different ways. The people go two different ways in Israel, and you have what we call a northern kingdom in Palestine, and then you have Judea. Judea, the capital of Judea was Jerusalem. The capital of Israel, which is the northern one was called, was Samaria, right? No big deal. It's, you just got a town that's there. It's still Jewish land uh, territory. There shouldn't be a problem here. The problem was uh, that the Solomon's temple was done, completed, and he's gone in the year of 928 B.C., right? Uh, somewhere around 200 years later, we, we get into this thing where uh, the border lines uh, are, 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 are kind of uh, not clear, and, and some people want to stretch out their border lines. One of them was a man by the name of Sennacherib. He was the king of, of, of uh, Assyria, and what he was doing is he was conquering land, and he was conquering peoples to expand his kingdom. Uh, he begins to start a march towards Israel and, and with every intention on, on uh, subjecting and, and colonizing the Israelites in northern Israel there. And he doesn't carry it out because he doesn't live long enough to do it. He has a son. His son is named Sargon, Sargon II. Sargon II, what does he do? He comes to the northern kingdom and he conquers it, right? And, and, and when he conquers it, this is things that you and I should be aware of because the minor prophets are full of this warning, right? And, and God had warned the Israelites in the north, change your ways, stop serving other gods, stop doing these things, stop living like the Gentiles. If you don't, there's coming a day that I am coming to punish you. Why? Because you have forgotten who I am. You've completely erased, erased that. And so when Sargon comes to conquer them, he conquers them and then... He, he takes them away into captivity. Now, when we talk about captivity, we know some things about captivity because of Babylon. And when we think of Babylon, we think of captivity, we think, yeah, but they return home. Uh, these people who went into captivity do not return home. Uh, here's another one of those historical notes that might be good to jot down. They become what is known today as the lost tribe of Israel. All right? Uh, they were eradicated. Uh, never seen again never to return, all right? So what does Sargon do with this beautiful city, the capital of the city of Samaria? What am I going to do with this? Hmm, you know what? I think I'm going to populate this city 
with my conquered people, right? His conquered people came from all over the known world at that time, which would have included North Africa and, and sub, some parts of sub-Saharan Africa. It would have included Persia and, and further east. It would have included Asians, all these things. And so what uh, Sargon does is he actually settles people in Samaria, making the Israelites feel like our land now is polluted. Why? Because of the others. And those others are people that we don't like. Well, tell me, uh, 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 Mr. Judea, do you have a reason not to like these people? Do you, why do you call them others? Why do you see them as others? What is the problem that you have with these people? There's quite a few of them. Uh, um, uh, number one, like we said, Sargon settles his people there. He, we, we've talked about the type of captives that he brings there. Uh, but another big thing on the list for the Israelites is that you worship many gods. Uh, and as a fact, as a matter of fact, because you worship many gods, you have this mixture uh, of gods, and it's on our land. Our land is polluted. We don't play that. And then you guys actually have the audacity, because you've been here for so long, to worship Yahweh, right? And so at, at first... It was called, we all know what polytheism is. We have more than one God. But for the Samaritans, they actually practice what is called synchronism. Synchronism is where, you know, we think that we found a dominant God that we learned by the Jews. Yahweh. But what better of an idea to take our highest deity and mix it with their highest deity together and we can worship those two gods together. It's called synchronism. All right? And this is what they practiced. The Israelites despised that. They thought wanted it to be only Yahweh. And eventually, guess what, folks? It became only Yahweh. They actually became God-fearers. They actually became Jews, right? Um, but that didn't help the Jews at all because they only accepted the Pentateuch. They didn't accept the Psalms and, and, and the Proverbs and the wisdom literature that came uh, they didn't, they refused to worship in Jerusalem and they wanted their own temple built in a place called Gerizim and they built that temple in Gerizim and eventually the Jews burned down their temple in 128 BC, right? And so when the Jews returned home from Babylon, they were building their temple. The Samaritans being the people that they are said, hey, can we help you out to rebuild this? They said, no, thank you. We won't ever be needing your help. So when they went home and they built their own temple 300 years later or so, the Jews burnt that down. And so there was this hatred uh, that they had for others, right? And the depiction that we get of the Samaritans uh, uh, in the New Testament is always the picture of the bad others. Uh, you know, one of my favorite stories is the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, the, the Levite passes by the man on the road. The priest passes by on the man on the road. And, and, and who does the just thing? Who does what is right? Who does what is just? And guess what, folks? Uh, uh, the good Samaritan who came to pack up this, uh, patch up this person and put him on his mule, he didn't do that because it was a mission from God. Okay? Uh, he wasn't a missionary saying, well, because I do this for God, I'm doing it. Nope, he did it for genuine love. Uh, uh, it, it was no mission. This is what I do. I see a man here. We're going to give him food. We're going to give him water. Why? Because that's just in my system. That is who I am. That is how I operate. That's how I practice. Now, 
moving right along, when we get to the New Testament, we find that not only do we have others who are Samaritans, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, if when you read the Gospels, you're going to find out there, there, there's one place about, I think everybody loves uh, uh, John chapter 1, not 1 John, but John chapter 1, and the beautiful language that, that's coming uh, out of the epilogue there, and the opening act, and, and things like that, and, and you know, and the, um, the darkness uh, uh, couldn't understand the light, and the light shines in, and, and the word became flesh, right? And, but when you move down there, you stumble across this passage that says, he came to his own, but his own didn't know him, or his own, according to some translations, rejected him, right? And so I do Bible studies, and when I do Bible studies, sometimes I'll do what's called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we'll go through the Synoptic Gospels. It is a reoccurring event over and over and over again. What's the reoccurring event? The reoccurring event is people who understand who Jesus is who aren't his people, right? And, and people who understand who he is and what he's about, and some of them he even understood his mission, while the disciples still struggle to get it in spite of seeing miracles all day long, right? While the Pharisees deny it and reject it. Uh, while other people are still trying to figure it out and they're on the fence on do we reject you or because you speak with such authority. But what about the others? The others had it hook, line, and sinker, right? And there was no accident. It was actually the others who had no problem with it. And so, and you get one gospel where one lady get, gives a really, really neat response about her line regarding faith. And this one is, it just so happens to not be a Samaritan woman, but it just so happens to be a Syrophoenician woman, Right? Uh, and, 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 and that is a word that implies Syria, Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon is Phoenicia. And so it says this in Matthew 15, verse 21. It says, Jesus went away from there, withdrew into the district of Tyre. I've been there, in Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are north of Israel. They're right outside the boundaries. As soon as you get over the land of, of Israel and Lebanon, Sidon is one of the places, that actually Tyre might be one of the places you're going to hit, and Sidon is, is very nearby. And so Jesus is up there doing ministry, and when he does ministry, and it says, And a Canaanite woman from the region came out and began to cry, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good that I take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she says, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith has been great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. What did she demonstrate? She demonstrated, hey, the, 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 your people that you're working with me, they got nothing on me. Hey, I'll take your crumbs. This is how much I believe in the word that you teach and the power of your authority and, and, and who sent you and who you are. I, I, all I need is what you can spare. 
That's how much faith I have. Just give me that little mustard seed. I don't need a lot of this. I know. Well, what's going on here? All throughout the Gospels, it's the other people who know, right? And what we see from the people who have been around who are not the others, guess what? They're the chosen. What we see from the chosen is we see discrimination, right? And, and we read the list, right, on, on why there's discrimination that was going on there and the problems that they had with the Samaritan women, uh, a woman, people, but there was never any adjustment to change that, right? And so Jesus comes in and says, hey, I'm speaking to the lost sheep of Israel, but you know what? The only one who's been getting it, the only ones who have been getting it have been two types of folks, if I can call the other one folks, Gentiles and demons. They know who I am, the others, but my own people, they do not, all right? And as we're, we're getting here and we're looking at the others and we're, and we're thinking about the others, you know that this is a story about us, right? Uh, we know the Bible, we're good biblical people, and we know that the others meant Gentiles, and we know that we were grafted in. There's a passage in Isaiah that says, I'm going to give my word to a people who didn't call on my name, a people who didn't ask for me, a foolish people, stammering people. I am going to give my word to them. They are going to be grafted in and enter into salvation, right? Well, the Jews, they possessed something that they didn't want the Gentiles involved with. Two things. In Palestine, they have their land, and they don't want their people involved with their land. Uh, they have their faith in Yahweh. They don't want people involved with their religion, not without some type of real commitment that you are actually going to be one of us and that you're going to take on our customs, our traditions, our, our ethnic values. The only way we're going to accept you by not being another is if we can make it so that you're not so other. The only way that we're going to, to accept you for being one of us is if we can do everything in our power to make it seem like you're not something else. We want, to, we want you to amalgamate. We want you to, to, to mix in, but, but, but we also want you to transform into who we are, right? And what we learn from that is we learn from that that that's not the gospel, right? Uh, we learn from that, that that story about those people has actually something to do with us. In that context, guess what? We, the Gentiles, at one point, were those people. Were we forsaken? No. We were grafted in. And now that we've been, we've been grafted in, here in the United States of America... You know, we, we, we've been the people for so long that we don't realize there's a those people on the other side or other people. And one thing I, I, I want to share with you about that is uh, knowing that this story at one time was about us gives us something that we should continue to rejoice for, and I know that we do. Uh, uh, before I get around to asking this question on how do we dif differentiate, uh, uh, the concept of those people is an easy concept. 
It's easy to do, right? And I stand before you today ethnically an African-American. My father's white. I, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, culturally an African-American. I was raised in an all-African-American household. But, but I'm both black and white, right? And when I went down to use whatever skills that it was that I had to use at the YMCA, uh, it drove me crazy, all right? I found people to be poverty-minded, spiritually broken. Uh, the things that people were allowed to come into the YMCA and, and do to our members, and, and, and we were unable to... to, to uh, keep them out and, ke and kick them out and keep them out. And it, was, it, it felt like to me that it was patting people on the back and allowing them to get away with things that I wouldn't allow you to get away with and still say that you're a member here at our health club. You ready for this? I'm going to say it. I would say to myself, this place is a zoo. These people are animals. Even if I'm not talking about all of them, guess what, folks? I admit, that's the way that I spoke sometimes, and that is truly the way that I felt. It didn't have a race on it all the time. If I felt that way because I seen people behave in the way that they behaved, it wasn't always African-American people, it wasn't always white people. It was just them people. Them people. The others, not me. Too much dignity, too much education, too much sense, too much common sense, too much... But these people, whoa, whoa. My friend Jake here uh, from Central Baptist uh, for many years, uh, uh, potentially, possibly over 20, is that right? Over 20 years ha ha has been a, a, a meat cutter hired by the unions in Cub Food, right? He understands if he hears me talking about the YMCA and the type of people that I had to deal with, them people, he knows exactly what I'm talking about because he spent quite a few years working at a cup food right down on Broadway Avenue, 94 and Broadway, all right? And in 94 and Broadway, for those of you who don't know, it's a predominantly African-American area. And, and, and in those predominantly African-American uh, areas in Minneapolis, you may not know this, but there's a lot of people here who are from Chicago, they're from Gary, Indiana, they're from Detroit, Michigan. They come from really rough, bad neighborhoods. Really rough, really bad. And they come here for a variety of different reasons. When they come here and work for different reasons, uh, be, becoming amalgamated so that they're no longer others may not be something that they're shooting for, nor do they need to shoot for it, Right? Jake, have you ever seen them as them people, those people, others that ever push you to the, to the intolerant limit on a regular basis, on a regular basis? Listen, folks, there is a, a, a time, a lot of you may not remember this, <clears throat> I'm sitting back and I'm watching Jerry Springer uh, at, at one time, and, and I can see there's a lot of young people in here. If you were my age, a lot of people be cracking up going, whew, boy, those were good old days. Uh, you turn on late night Jerry Springer and watch a good old boxing match, hair being pulled out, cussing, you name it. It was a ride, right? And the Ku Klux Klan just so happened to be on Jerry Springer uh, at this time. And, 
and, and, and the Klan men came on. And typically with me, if there's something on and there's the Ku Klux Klan and they're on, I don't listen long because, I, you know, they seem like they drop out like the third grade, right? And they're, and they're just simply, uh, when I hear them talk, I never heard a lot of things that I, can, I you can't even understand you, all right? Not that I'm putting down the Klan, it's just true, all right? But at any rate, I, I, for the first time in my life, uh, 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 the guy who may have been considered their grand wizard, he gets up and speak. He's young. He gets up and speak. He actually has an education. And I actually listened to him. And can you believe this, folks? He actually said something that I agreed upon. He starts talking, and he starts talking, and he starts talking. Now, how on earth am I going to agree with somebody who's in a clan on anything, Right? But when he was done saying it, I said, you know what, I, I agree with you 100%. Who doesn't want that? And the words that he said is he said, hey, look, I just want to grow up in a community. I, I want my kids to be raised in a community where people don't break into your houses, where people don't steal your cars, where there's no gun violence, and, 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 and that you feel safe, even if you wanted to leave your door unlocked at night. And, and when I heard him say that, once again, I said, who doesn't want that? Good point, clan man. We all want that, actually. And guess what? So do the people who are in those communities that come from, the communities that they come from. Ladies and gentlemen, nobody asks to be born where they're born. Okay? Uh, my first time I went to go visit my relatives in South Central, uh, uh, South Side Chicago, I had already lived in South Central Los Angeles. When I went to South Side Chicago, I, I was thoroughly uncomfortable because I've never seen so much poverty stacked on poverty and stack poverty just stacked miles poverty never saw anything like that in my life a child don't ask to be born there right and as a result of that child being born there they became they become a, 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 a product of they of their environment and especially if you already have odds against you, like drugs and guns being dumped in your community, and then us voluntarily bringing guns and drugs back in our community and getting that going, nobody don't ask to be there. But at the same time, guess what? No one asks to be born in Beverly Hills. No one asks to be born in Beacon Hill in Boston. No one asks to be born wealthy just born and, 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 and you're given the lot that you are given and with that being said because we don't ask where we're born or who we're born to there's no reason for any of us to walk around in shame and guilt for who we are and who God has made us to be please don't ever uh, let anybody stand on this pulpit or any pulpit and shame you for being white. There is no shame in, in being perfectly who you are. It's a lot that you get. Make the best out of it. This life is short. I'm at halftime right now. I know. I'm on the other half. And you can really see it then, especially when you're playing catch with a real baseball player. Okay? It's a fact. But don't let nobody bring you to that shame. Nobody asks where they're born. Some people are going to be born into wealth, and some people are going to be born into abject poverty. Right? What we do when we are Christians, as people who are believers of God, 
is we want to make sure that there are no others, right? And there are no others because of what? Because of this brotherhood that we create, and we call that brotherhood the body of Christ. That body of Christ, we don't see, find, seek out, create a social stratification that says there's others back there, right? And so when uh, there was a, a man who was killed recently, and, and uh, his name is George Floyd, um, when that happened, um, Thursday would have been on the heels of when it hit the news and the media, and, and that Thursday is when things erupted, rocks started flying, windows started getting broken into, looting started. As soon as I heard that that was happening, I get a phone call probably at about noon, a little bit after that. I had big plans for that day that I need to accomplish. Jake calls me and says, wow, things are going on. I hope the church is safe. I said, I'm coming down, you know. And so what did I come down to do? I came down and got right into the heart of it, all right? And getting right into the heart of it, I want to walk right uh, up and look at the stores that people are going into, robbing and looting and doing this. Walk past people, I had young, two young men who had AR-15s who were gardener shop, talk to them. Why? Well, number one, it's easy for me to be down here and to coexist and, and do that. Number two, made it clear I was a pastor, uh, uh, you know, because it is a dangerous situation, right? Number three, guess what? I have relationships with the store owners. Okay, and so as a, as a part of somebody who goes out to the community for Central Baptist Church, I go out to the community, I've met with the store owners, I've built relationships with the store owners, it's been really quite experience, and guess what, I can assure you that every store owner or business manager or supervisor that I know, is be, they're in this neighborhood the same reason you are, same reason Central is, they're in this community to serve this community. And they love this community, and they find value in this community, right? And so I was hurt by the things that was going on to their businesses, and, and, and it hurt me for quite some time because I, I didn't know which one, Troy, are you going to be hurt by the most? Are you going to be hurt by the fact of this unjust killing of this man that was just brutal? Uh, 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 this police officer killed this man, George Floyd, as though he was proud of it, I was staring into the camera. I thought he was going to wave at me at some point. It was brutal, despicable. Or are you more angry of the aftermath that took place that has nothing to do with racial justice? When you start breaking into buildings and stealing things to take them out and to take them home and so that you have new clothes, the racial justice question, comments, concerns, they stop right there got nothing to do with it at that point and so I'm upset with this frustration and this friction on, on how do I comply how do I operate in this when you want to make sure that you don't rise to the level of anger that everybody else is operating on if you do you're going to be on Facebook you're going to do this you're going to be in all these discussions that don't seem to bring unity at all they bring division and more division and guess what? Uh, one side sometimes is stronger than one side. So if I have a real, real take on a situation, and this is my take on a situation, I might want to conceal it because that's not the popular take. I can't say that I like Donald Trump. I can't say that I, I, I voted for this guy. Why? Because it's not popular and things get real weird. Right? But can I tell you all something? One good thing about racism 
And right now you should be saying, oh, I, I, I didn't know there was a good thing uh, uh, about racism. I can't wait to hear this. If there is one good thing about racism, the good thing is you can confess it. You feel me? And, and, and listen, I, I just asked Jake, have you said others before on, on a daily basis? What are you talking about, Troy? Have I said others before? Recently, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been ordained since 2012. I've been involved with since 2002. And I just went to my hometown in Kokomo, Indiana two weeks ago. And my entire trip there was these people. These people. All right. And guess what? Yes. As a person who's involved with the body of Christ, as a believer, as a preacher, all of these good religious check marks that I got that says that I'm not supposed to be this way. All these checkpoints says that I am not supposed to be the guy that says it, but you know what? I do, and I've done that. The good thing about being able to confess something like that is that you're able to repent. And so when I went home to Indianapolis, the unfortunate thing is, you know, I've got a best friend. His name's Jeremy, the one who brought me to Minnesota, who is drinking himself to death, five foot 10, 128 pounds, uh, uh, induced psychosis. He sees things uh, that aren't really happening. His family's broken up with him. His friends broken up with me. I've got a son who's, whose name's Jeremy. He was raised by his mom and his uh, stepdad. He's not far off from where my best friend is. Uh, I want to go in there and be able to help to do things and stuff like this. And, and now because I've got a bad taste in my mouth because of my initial trip in Indiana, now the rest of the trip is like that. So it becomes this big judging party, right? To where I say, them people. Those people. That's who the Samaritan woman was to the Jews. That's who the Syrio-Phoenician Canaanite woman was to the Jews. That's who we were to the Jews. We were the others. And one of the ways that I wanted to encourage you this morning, having a ministry in the midway here, I hope that you guys get to a place that you're already there, probably, uh, if you're not, <clears throat> where you can go out and be involved in the midway and never look at anybody else as them people or as others. Well, how do I get there, Mr. Pastor? How do I get that? If, if, if there's something really is in my heart, and, and yeah, you know, I've struggled with it, like being at, at Cub Food or, you know, like your situation, be at the YMCA, or I drive past certain communities and it's loud, it's this, it's that, it's that. I don't comprehend it. One of my best friends, Mike Marrier, the guy who uh, saved me uh, uh, while I was out there tripping out on drugs and stuff, the Christian man, he did it with me once. And he said, yeah, yeah. might like this. He, he said, hey, Troy, you know what? I... I there's one thing that really bothers me about, you know, black culture. I said, what? He said, whenever I watch NFL football and somebody scores a touchdown, I hate the way they celebrate as though they had done it all by themselves. Well, uh, we call that the end zone what? The, 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 yeah, the end zone dance, you know, and as you can see, it's getting, gotten creative over the years. And I, I respect that and I appreciate that. You know why? Why? Because that was a real hangup for him. That, that was really something in his heart that caused him to say, them people, those people. And it caused him to differentiate that way. Now on the heels of, of, of what happened to George Floyd, 
You know, I don't know if the police officer was thinking those people or not. I don't know because he killed George Floyd that he was a racist. Uh, uh, what I do know is that he was an unjust police officer. And, and, and when you're an unjust, corrupt police officer, you could have done what you did to George Floyd to anybody. Uh, LAPD had a whole bunches of them in, in the 80s. I know. I've got a tooth missing uh, from having my head slammed down on, on a police hood. Okay? And, and so... We want to be able to operate in a way where we don't see people different than ourselves. But I tell you one thing, and I'm going to wrap it up and I'm going to close with this. It begins here. If you have struggled with that, tell somebody. It doesn't have to get extreme. Nothing has to get weird. I'll even leave my email and, and contact information here with your pastor. You want to hook up with me and, and talk about it, have a coffee or something? We can do that. I'm just right down the street. But talk about it. I wasn't going to get delivered from cocaine if I didn't admit that I was an addict, <laughs> all right? A lot of people struggle with alcohol. The step one in their program is we admitted we were powerless over our addiction, right? It's okay. Racism to differentiate yourself. And so the question that I left with your pastor uh, uh, the other night was, uh, ask yourself that, this question, and here's the question you want to ask yourself. Have I ever differentiated in my lifetime between me and those people, them folks. If I have, do I need to repent? Confess and repent. And with that question right there, that will be your journey. I'm not talking about the, the journey that other people need to take who watch the news and who are on Fox or CNN and doing it. I'm talking about the journey you guys need to take for yourself. You, Mr. Man in the Crips, okay? Your own personal journey. Can I get an amen? Well, that was your first amen. We're going to work on these amens now when folks are preaching, all right? Hey, thank you for the time. I know that I went a little bit long today, but I'm very grateful that you guys were patient, you were attentive, you listened. I hope that you got something out of it today. I'm going to close with a word of prayer, and I believe that the musicians are going to come back up and close us. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to your name, uh, come to you in your May we come, Lord, in complete humility this morning. We come here, Lord, to ask you to expose our hearts. Help us to be able to look into the mirror, Lord, and see the truth. Help us to get beyond denial on, on a very facets of life that keep us back from community, that keep us back from truly loving our neighbor. It looks to the New Testament that our Lord found favor with the Samaritans, Lord, the others. And Lord, we want to make sure that what we do, we do as genuine people in the body of Christ who are operating in, in, in our realm of influence for complete brotherhood and servitude towards who you are and what you mean for our lives. Lord, I pray for this faith community. I pray, Lord, that you would bless it. I, I pray that this community would increase and help them to overcome any goals that they have issues with. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you, folks.